toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABCs, Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a veteran journalist who specializes in both healthcare and in sports. Sometimes I write about healthcare within sports, like medical providers who work at ski resorts or those tending to athletes at the Olympics. In this era of the coronavirus and the lockdown that is helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, I think often of what the people who work in sports are experiencing at a time that they would normally be on the field, on the court, or at the rink. I think of the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, the executives, the game day staff, and I'm interested in how fans are faring now. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing them about the very real here and now, and also about the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports that we love return. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hillelthescribecommunications.com. My guest today is Jerry Naren. He is someone known in any sport as a lifer whose entire career has been spent performing various roles for many sports franchises. Jerry Naren was a catcher who played in the major leagues for eight seasons with the New York Yankees, Seattle Mariners, and California Angels. He managed for the Texas Rangers and the Cincinnati Reds, where he had also been a coach. And he coached for the Baltimore Orioles, Boston Red Sox, Milwaukee Brewers, and Arizona Diamondbacks. Now he's back for a second go with the Red Sox as a bench coach. Jerry Naren, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABCs, Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Here we go. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Jerry, you were in Florida at spring training with the Red Sox in March when Commissioner Rob Manfred decided to shut down the operations of Major League Baseball because of the coronavirus scare. And I'm wondering if you can recall, really pinpoint where you were, what you were doing when you heard about this. No, we, we had a night game in Port Charlotte against the, the Rays, uh, what was it, the 11th. And, uh, you know, during the game, uh, the NBA shut down their game. And then on the 12th, we had the day off. And, you know, there were a couple games. Or most of the games were played. Exhibition games were played on the 12th. And we came in on the 13th and discussed it. You know, we knew we weren't going to play. But, but we, everybody was hoping it would only be like a couple-week thing and then we'd be back on the field playing. So then what happened? When did you – what well, happened? we stayed. You know, we, you know that was uh, – the 13th was on a Friday, I believe. and. Uh, we, we wanted to make sure, you know, that what MLB was going to do with the CDC and it ended up that uh, they were going to shut down spring training. So on Monday, you know, I, I came home to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. How long a drive was that? What did you do? What were you thinking yeah, about on about the road? 12 hours. It's, a, it's about a 12-hour drive. And uh, uh, just, you know, not knowing how serious this is, there's just so many unknowns on this thing. And, uh, 
you hear a lot of different things from the beginning. It was like a bad cold or a flu. You heard that. Uh, you know, I think uh, when President Trump shut down the travel from China right at the end of January, that got everybody's attention. But then you got politicians in, in New York and in San Francisco and different places. And, you know, like the, the uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, everybody's saying, well, it's not that bad. And, you know, and, and I think people just didn't realize how bad it was, especially when the politicians in uh, San Francisco and New York are saying, go about your business. It's not that bad. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I was thinking that this already, even before, was kind of shaping up as a, as a strange, maybe a challenging year for you because you came to a team that had just fired its manager, Alex Cora, because of the sign-stealing scandal, the same guy who led the Red Sox to a World Series title a couple of years ago, and they just traded away the best player, maybe the best player in baseball, Mookie Betts, in a kind of a salary dump, and I'm wondering how once you got to spring training and these things were happening even before the coronavirus scare, what, what were you thinking? What was, what was in your mind about these two enormous baseball moves? Well, you know, the thing about the sign still thing, that's heartbreaking to everybody in baseball and uh, all fans and players and, you know, anybody involved in the game, of course, but uh, uh, just uh, Ron Renicky was named interim manager there in Boston and wanted to know if I'd come back and uh, be interested in being his bench coach. And I uh, love the year that I had there in Boston. And Boston's one of the best places to uh, be in baseball. Great fans and uh, uh, just a great atmosphere there in Fenway. Everybody knows that with a chance to win. And uh, loved having the opportunity to be back with them. Well, I mean, you had kind of an interesting. I don't know, four months, five months. If you go back to last season, you had, of course, you had spent the three years, three seasons with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Then you decided to leave the team. You went to, you were interviewed by the Mets for the bench coach job. Then you were hired by the, um, by the Red Sox ultimately. And I'm wondering what, you know, whether that was a kind of a tumultuous, as tumultuous period for you as it, it seems from the outside looking in. I mean, there's a lot happening in your in your career at that point. Well, uh, you know, I enjoyed my time with the Diamondbacks. It was just they were going to change my role a little bit, and I wanted to do more and uh, also be on the East Coast if possible. And I've been in the game so long; it was it was uh, it's nice to be in a position where you can kind of you know not have to do something. You you get to do it if you want to, and. Uh, I'm, I've been in that position, and it was unbelievable just how things worked out, how the, the uh, Red Sox job was available, and to be back with Ron Ranicky, who uh, I've coached for in, in Milwaukee for five years. Right. I mean, I, I guess for where you live in North Carolina, you'd be um, much closer. I mean, I, maybe ideally in terms of geography, if you'd got a job with Baltimore or Washington, well, Washington Nationals, of course, the World Series champions, or Baltimore, have you thought of what it would mean to you to uh, go towards the end of your career, to go to a, a town that's much, much closer geographically to you, where people really could get to see you much more readily? Well, being on the East Coast, uh, it's uh, it's much easier, especially if you have spring training in Florida than Arizona. And uh, it's uh, to be able to get home and get family there where I am, it's a lot easier. And that's, that's, uh, something I was hoping would happen and it did with the Red Sox and just 
hoping and waiting and praying this season gets going here pretty soon. You know, we don't know. There's so many unknowns, but uh, I think everybody's wanting to get back to uh, kind of a maybe not the same normal life we had before, but as close as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, your last few jobs, I guess, going back to Milwaukee, right? You had Boston before that, Arizona before the Milwaukee. You've been a bench coach. And I'm wondering, I mean, when I first started following baseball at the time that you were playing, there was no such role that I can think of. It might not, might not have been any major league team that had a role called a bench coach. Of course, now there's so many more coaches on teams back then. It was first base, third base pitching coach and bullpen coach, that was it. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what the responsibilities of a bench coach are these days. Well, uh, you know, with uh, just the way the game has evolved with all the information, with the media, uh, everything going on today, it's uh, every manager, if, if he had to do things on his own like uh, they did 30, 40 years ago, you know, there's not enough time in the day. And really, it's helping the manager out with a lot of different things that go on with scheduling and uh, just as they're communicating things to players when he's not able to and and uh, just trying to be like uh, uh, another set of eyes and ears and uh, to help the manager any way you can. And today with uh, the way the front offices are using information, uh, getting the the uh, com information communicated to the players and uh, so they can best use what the front office is wanting to get the players. So does that mean that you're the intermediary between the analytics folks in the front office and the player about splits against particular pitchers, particular relievers, that kind of thing? Or do you mean something else by information? Different people get the information, but I know with my time in Arizona, uh, it would be like I would run the scouting meetings, that type thing, and uh, make sure the players had information they could use and try to find out from players what they want and, you know, what they feel like they can't use. And uh, I, I love the information today, Dan. You know, I, I, I'm, uh, I've been around the game so long, I think a lot of people kind of profile me as an old-school guy that doesn't want any of this stuff. But I think uh, – Everybody that's ever been in the game wants as much information as they can to try to help you win a ball game. So what, what kind of information are you talking about? Uh, we talk about scouting reports. Those kind of scouting reports have been around almost as long as baseball has been around. So what, what kinds of information do you handle now that maybe when you were a player, it would not have been reaching your hands? You, you would not have had the benefit of these things. Well, I can tell you this. When I managed the Rangers back in 01 and 02, I would be digging up the individual matchups on my own uh, historical matchups between pitchers and hitters. And today you've got all kinds of things uh, right there in front of you. I just got, a, got bumped off a little bit there. But, but uh, you know, that, that defensive positioning, uh, there's also projections on different guys, what they might do, you know, with their swing, what the pitcher throws, that type thing. And, uh, uh, I think one thing, you know, we talk about the defensive positioning is something new today, but I, I don't know why, but I saw a thing last night on uh, Mickey Mantle's 500 home run. Mm -hmm. And it was against the Orioles, and uh, they had three guys on the right side of the infield. Brooks Robinson was the only guy on the left side of the infield. So this defensive positioning stuff, it's been around a while, but uh, I think with all the information today, it's just putting guys in the right place for the uh, highest probability balls are going to be hit, then uh, I like it.
I mean, I, I think that the difference between now and then is then it was, those, those kind of extreme shifts were reserved for the sort of the ultimate players. The Williams shift, of course, is well known, and you're mentioning Mantle. I mean, it was not anywhere near the extent that it would be used almost on every player possible. I mean, now the teams that shift a lot will do it almost on every batter coming up for the other team. Yeah, well, it's all probabilities where balls are hit. You've got so much, so much information today where you can go back and, and uh, games are charted and what pitch they hit and where they hit it, that type thing. Uh, in 93 and 94, when I was coaching with the Orioles, we didn't have somebody charting the game. So I was the bench coach and third base coach, and I would go in and after the games and after running off of v- VHS, and, you know, it was back and forth trying to get it, get every at bat. I was charting where pitches, what the pitch was, where it was in the zone that was hit, and where they were uh, being hit. Now you've got all kinds of people in front offices doing that for you. The information we get today is uh, – uh, it's right there at your fingertips instead of having to work through it like I did in 93 and 94. I spent a lot of time after games sitting in a video room doing all those things by myself. Were you saying that you also would do that during the game, like between innings? You'd be No, no. when I was, I was coaching third uh, with the Orioles, I would, I, and, uh, one year I was a bench coach, one year I was a third base coach. But anyway, I would come in after the games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the games would be taped on a VHS. Mm-hmm. And I would be throwing those into the video and just having to run them back and forth. And it was it was pretty interesting. And uh, uh, I, I think by now the coaches that are coach coming into the big leagues now, they have no clue, I think, sometimes uh, how easy they've got it. And uh, I'm, I'm not even sure some of them know how to get the information if they had to do it on their own. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And you learn a lot by, by doing things like that on your own. I mean, what do you make of some people who criticize the sort of the prevalence of shifts that especially hitters, <laughs> hitters often are the ones complaining the most that it's, it's uh, not fair for them and uh, it really should be outlawed or it should be limited in some ways. I mean, what, how, do you, how do you see those kind of complaints? Um, I think uh, – I, I, you know, I'm having a little bit of trouble here. I hope everything's coming through. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned like the big hitters like Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle. There were shifts. But the game has kind of evolved where now everybody's trying to hit the home run every every swing they take. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when the shifts were going on against Williams and Mantle, if you'd have had one guy on the other side of the infield, the batters would have done everything they could to have tried to hit the ball that way. And until hitters today start doing that, using, you know, the entire field more instead of just trying to go yard on every swing. Uh, You're crazy not to use shifts against You know, I I kind of view it that way as well. I I don't understand why those complaints are given any validity at all because it's, it's their responsibility to adapt the same way it was your responsibility to adapt to their strengths. You have to sort of neutralize or negate or weaken their strengths to give you a better chance. And the players seem to be, players who complain about that seem to think that they, they do not have to adapt to what the defense is doing against them. So um, I don't know, it's a bit of a, a bit of a tug, of, a tug of war, but, uh, but I think the proponents of the shift are holding firm and it seems like it's here to stay. I hope it is. I mean, you, you, you that's part of the game now and uh, it's going to be here until the hitters start making adjustments. 
do, do you see that happening? Yeah, I do. I, I think the teams that really <clears throat> excuse me, when the uh, a ball club that really starts doing that and putting the ball in play and really battling with two strikes, I think they're going to be a little bit ahead of the curve on this thing. And, uh, you know, you get in the postseason where you're seeing good pitching every night. This three-run homer doesn't exactly work for you. You better be able to put the ball in play and uh, manufacture some runs when you're facing really good pitching. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what have you been doing in the month or a little more than a month now since you've return home since the, the shutdown. What was your day? What are your days like? Uh, you know, I'm trying my best to follow guidelines, uh, get out and go to the grocery. And uh, really, that's about it. Uh, I have a bike. A bike, though, I ride all the time. I do a lot of bike riding. Hmm. And uh, I, 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 my son is a coach in the minor leagues with the uh, Braves. I uh, see him where we throw, you know, I'm trying to stay, make sure my arm stays ready for BP if we get back and he's doing the same thing. But uh, uh, like my family and my grandchildren, uh, that we're staying separated. We're staying, my wife and I stay here in the house and, uh, and uh, not doing any uh, uh, socializing. We're doing the social distancing thing and uh, it's not a lot of fun, especially when you're home and, and can't see your grandchildren. How close by do they live to where you are? Oh, I've got uh, five that are right, five grandchildren that are right here in town, and then I've got uh, some that are uh, uh, like an hour and a half away in Wilmington, and then of course I've got four now in Jerusalem, so I can't I can't get to see them anyway. But uh, one of my daughters and her husband and her children are, have a trip planned to Israel this summer in July, so uh, hopefully everything will be. Uh, back to where they'll be able to go and they're really looking forward to it. And I know my daughter and family there in Israel are looking forward to coming. Well, I mean, do, do you, do you foresee, can you imagine the season starting? I was going to say resuming, but it hasn't started yet. I mean, can you see the season even occurring at all um, or anytime soon? I, I don't know. You know, we're all hoping uh, and uh, there's been different scenarios put out there where everybody would go to Arizona and play. And then there's one where Arizona and Florida and uh, without fans to start and see where it progresses after that. Uh, out of those two, the thing with the Florida and Arizona split seasons where you've got divisions uh, where like in Florida, I think we'd be in a division with the Braves, Rays, Orioles and Twins, because we're all right around Fort Myers or Port Charlotte. Uh, and then you've got uh, clubs on the east coast of uh, Florida. They would be in the same division, that type thing. I like that of the two. But, uh, you know, we're all hoping we'll be back at our home ballparks with fans. Have you been told anything uh, about, these, about these possible scenarios for starting the season? Or it's all rumors, even in your, at your level? They're, they're, not, they're not rumors as much as they're things that are seriously being discussed. I think mm -hmm. everybody wants to get uh, uh, back to uh, living our lives and we want to get games back being played. We know when this thing first starts opening up, we're going to have to you know, continue to do some uh, social distancing. We may even have to do things, wear masks, that type thing. But... Uh, I, I do know this, we can't live with fear the rest of our lives and just shutter ourselves in our homes and live in a bubble or that type thing. At some point, we've got to start getting out and doing things, but we've got to be smart when we do uh, get back to uh, living. 
So how, how do you how do you prepare or stay sharp mentally in terms of preparation for the season while you're so far from all your colleagues, your coaches, manager, front office, the players? I mean, do you have conference calls? Do you have video conference calls? What do you what do you do to keep the sort of the pretense or the the hope that there'll be a season ahead to keep that alive? What are you doing? No, we stay in contact and we uh, have some Zoom calls, uh, conference calls. And, uh, uh, you know, like a month ago, I didn't even know what Zoom was, but I've learned out pretty, learned pretty quick how to, how to do the Zoom thing. But uh, uh, I think everybody's kind of treating it like uh, January, getting ready to go to spring training as much as they can. I know guys aren't able to get out to batting cages like they would like to probably, but everybody's got somebody that I think they've uh, been throwing with and working out with, but not like in public settings. They're trying to keep it with as few people as possible and uh, the same people. And I think guys are being real smart about it. Uh, I'm just hoping uh, we can get back here within the next couple of weeks. Uh, it seems like everything I'm hearing, the, the, uh, uh, the so-called curve is flattening and there's some, some progress being made with less hospitalizations. And uh, I know I, I, everything I hear is everybody's trying to get uh, some kind of vaccine going or some kind of treatment going that uh, we'll be able to get back to, to uh, being uh, having public lives again. Well, I mean, w what is the situation where you live in your town in the region in terms of the, uh, the scare and the, um, the, the health threat? I mean, the numbers of no, right here hospitals. in North Carolina, I think there's been like 3,500 people or maybe 4,000 people that have uh, tested positive. Maybe not that many. I'm not sure. In our town, there's been a few. But, uh, you know, I, I ride my bike every day and I, I drive by the hospital here and it's like a ghost town. I mean, it's it only looks like the staff parking lot, staff full and uh, like the visitor parking lot is completely empty. So, you know, the hospital here is uh, uh, not having any kind of surge at all. I mean, I don't even know if anybody in our town's been hospitalized with the, the COVID. Well, not knock on wood, it should stay that way, right? Well, I think with the social distancing everybody's been doing, uh, uh, it's made a big difference. And, uh, but uh, we'll just see. I think there's, you know, they call it, uh, uh, the, the, it's just a new virus. Nobody knows, uh, knew anything about it, I think. And uh, I think uh, the social distancing thing has definitely helped. But uh, when you get something new like this, I, I don't believe in pointing fingers at anybody. It's when you have something new going on, you just try to learn as you go along. And I think everybody's doing that. Mm -hmm. So what about the players? Like, have you had a chance to talk to them since the the I haven't talked to one of them, but some of them, and uh, they, they're all staying in shape and uh, trying to do everything they can that when we get going, uh, get the season going back as quickly as possible. I've heard there'd probably be at least three weeks of spring training. And uh, the position players would have no trouble at all in three weeks getting ready. The starting pitching would be the biggest uh, drawback with the short spring training like that. <laughs> and, and actually, it – the the shutdown occurred so early in spring training, although games, exhibition games had started, it was still at least, I'd say about two weeks before the season was scheduled to start. And so 
I'm, I'm sure, I'm guessing that there were many roster decisions that had yet, not yet been made and still have to be made. So how do you, how does the coaching staff and the management go about doing that without being around the players? Well, for one thing, the starting pitching was about ramped up to get the season going. They were, you know, they were down to maybe their last couple starts before the season would open up. So they were ready. Uh, the, the bullpen guys, the relievers, they were ready. They had thrown enough. We were, you know, we were right there within a couple of weeks of starting. And everybody, when you get that close, everybody's pretty close to being game ready. Uh, as for the roster, I think one thing is if when we go back to play, and there will be expanded rosters. How much, I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, there will be more than 26 guys on the opening day roster when we start back up. And, um, I went through the strike in 81 where we set out 50-some days right in the middle of the season. And uh, that year we came back and had eight or nine days uh, – was all that we had to prepare to get the second half going that year. So three weeks can get it done. You're just going to have to be real careful with the starting pitching. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I there's a good bit I wanted to ask you as well about your playing career to go back in time a little bit. And, you know, I think back to two, two particular periods when you were, well, one as a player, one as a coach, when you came so close, so, so close to – reaching the World Series in 86 with the, with the Angels uh, against the Red Sox in 03 with the Red Sox against the Yankees. And it took a home run in extra innings of a deciding game to knock you out. And it's about as close as you can get. Of course, 03 with Aaron Blank Boone, uh, it ended, it was a walk-off at the end of the game and that was it immediately over. And I'm wondering what it's like as somebody who goes through a whole season from, as we were talking about spring training, to come to the very, very end, almost almost the ultimate game of the season, the very last series before the World Series, which decides the champion, to go through all that, all the preparation, all the games, all the practices, all the, the mental challenges, the physical challenges, the injuries, everything, and to get that close to the ultimate, to competing for the ultimate prize, and then to come that close and be knocked out. And I'm wondering how somebody overcomes that disappointment, that sort of feeling of so close but so far. How do you, how do you move on after that? <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty good question because I sometimes don't get over it. Uh, I think about, you know, when I was with the Angels and Dave Henderson hit the home run against us, uh, I think about that a lot. Uh, I know we had our best pitcher on the mound that day in Mike Witt, and Gene Mark took him out with two outs and nobody on. And uh, uh, Gary Lucas comes in and hits Rich Gebman with the first pitch, and then Dave Henderson has two strikes against Donnie Moore and hits a home run with two strikes on him. Uh, but we took our best pitcher out, and then uh, with the Red Sox, and we had our best pitcher in the game, and uh, Grady Little left our best pitcher in the game in Pedro, and uh, we ended up getting beat that game. So, uh, I've missed going to the World Series with our best guy being taken out of the game and uh, our best guy being left in the game. So the the the, the I guess the uh, 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 moral of that is everyone who comes in the game better get somebody out. So, uh, but I, I've been very blessed to be around the game a long time. Uh, very few guys uh, go back to the '70s as a player. Uh, I was a September call up with the Yankees in '78 when Bucky hit the home run and. Fenway and 
uh, still at it uh, in 2020. So uh, I've been very blessed and uh, uh, be around so many great clubs. We had some great clubs in Texas in the 90s and uh, just ran into the Yankees every year in the uh, postseason. We played them three times in the postseason first round. And uh, so I've been pretty close a lot then when uh, with the, the Brewers, we had a great club in 2011, got beaten the LCS there against St. Louis, who won the World Series that year. So uh, mm -hmm. I've been very fortunate to be around some great clubs. Well, I mean, you mentioned 78. Of course, the Yankees, after the 10 home run and the, the terrific comeback against Boston in the Eastern Division. And of course, they took the World Series against the Dodgers that year. And so you came so close at the beginning. I mean, you were on, yeah. on a team that went to the World Series and won it, and you've had these close calls at various points through your career. And I'm wondering, well, as far as 78 goes, whether how close you came to, be, to being put on the postseason roster. I mean, or, you know, like, did you think that it was realistic that you'd be added to the team having not played yet? I, I, don't, I had no clue, uh, you know. Uh, in 77, I had a real big year in AA, uh, and there was talk that I'd be called up to the big league club in 77, but it didn't happen. And then in 78, uh, the Yankees AAA club was in Tacoma that year. And we were on the West Coast, and, you know, it was difficult getting back to the East Coast at times. There was a couple times during the year I thought I was going to get called up and didn't. And then in September, Tacoma uh, uh, was in uh, the playoffs out there in the Coast League, and uh, that kept going on. So I got really got called up uh, only with about two weeks to go in the season in 78 and didn't even appear in a game, uh, which is disappointing. Uh, you know, the baseball encyclopedia doesn't even think I exist in 78, I guess. But uh, uh, just being around those clubs in uh, spring training those years in the 70s, uh, uh, you know, learned a great deal from great players and great clubs there. and. Uh, uh, then in, uh, the, I, I've just been so blessed with it of being around so many great players and uh, it's a disappointment not getting in the World Series but been in the postseason about nine or ten times and uh, it's been a lot of fun So in 78 you were with the club with the Yankees all the way through game 163 against Boston at the game in Fenway Yes and uh, uh, thereafter that I wasn't put on the postseason roster so I came home after that so what was what was it like to be there and seeing Bucky Dent hit that home run in the I think it was the seventh inning or the eighth inning, right? Three run homer. Well, you know, he he, he fouled the ball off his foot before that, and then you know, uh, I guess uh, uh, there was some people even said, "Why is why is Lemon even letting him hit here?" They thought he might have been used a pinch hitter there. If Billy would have been the manager, Billy would have definitely a pinch hit somebody for him probably, but. Uh, you know, he hit the fly ball to left field, and everybody in the dugout was just thinking and hoping it was going to get off the wall. Everybody saw Yaz back up, and they thought, you know, it was going to be close to coming, hitting off the wall or, or being caught. And the next thing you know, it just barely gets out. I mean, uh, I can still see it hitting in the screen there above uh, Yaz's head, right by the, between the foul pole and the, the light standard there in left field. And it just barely got out, but it, it definitely got in the screen. Well, what, what do they say in the box score? It's still a three-run homer, right? Absolutely. It was like a like the red seat that Ted Williams hit there in Fenway. It, you know, it was as big as that home run, even though it just barely got out. Right, right. I mean, it, you know, on television, having watched it, I thought it was a, a fly ball to, you know, maybe a pop-up even to left field. It didn't look like it was a powerful shot at all. 
Well, early in the game, the, the wind was blowing like from uh, third to first. And uh, Reggie hit a ball. I think it was his first at bat that everybody thought was going to be at least off the wall, maybe in, in the screen. And it got caught. And then the wind changed and uh, started blowing out more to left field. If, uh, if Bucky would hit the ball there early in the game, it would have been just like Reggie's ball would have been caught. But, uh, uh, and uh, if Reggie would hit that ball later, Reggie would hit two home runs out there. And, of course, Dan went on to have an extraordinary World Series against the Dodgers, and as did another guy not known for his hitting, uh, Ryan Doyle, second baseman. Those two guys really just were um, were ter- terrific on offense, and, uh, and then the Yankees won the World Series in, in six. And so the next year, you go to spring training. You Did you make the team out of, out of uh, Florida? Right off the bat. Yeah, I made the club out of spring training, and uh, I was with the Yankees all of 79. And, uh, you know, that's when uh, Thurman ended up getting killed and a uh, huge, huge loss uh, for, of course, his family and uh, everybody there with the Yankees and uh, all the fans in New York. Uh, Thurman was a great player, and I still think he should be a Hall of Famer. I'm wondering what you remember about his impact on you, his conversations you had with him, things you went, you asked about catching, or did he initiate conversations, or was he kind of in the way of players back then that were a little bit standoffish toward rookies playing the same position? Like, how, how was he? You guys were both catchers, but he was an established veteran, and you were just in your first full season. So how, how was that dynamic? It was great. Uh, you know, he gave me great advice. He said Billy Martin could hit a curveball when he played. So if you ever have any second thoughts about calling a pitch, just call a curveball. Uh, oh, that's you know, great. The that's advice great. he gave me, Billy's ever mad at you, just go ahead and hit him before he sucker punches you. So uh, Seriously. <laughs> that's, that's the two best advice Thurman ever gave me. Well, what does that mean, that, that he had gone into a fight with, with Martin himself? No, 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 no. You know, everybody talks kidded Billy about, you know, every fight he got in was like one punch where he would sucker punch somebody, which I don't know if that's true or not, but mm. Thurman just made a joke out of it. And uh, But no, I, I got along well with Billy. Uh, Billy was an outstanding manager. Uh, Billy liked to get on guys, and uh, if, if you uh, uh, come back at Billy, he'd be, he'd, you know, support you and be on your side. So that was one of the things uh, Thurman said, if he ever really gets mad at you, don't take any any junk off of him. Uh, you, if you'll get back in his face, he'll leave you alone. And, uh, uh, that was pretty much true, and I never had any problems with Billy. Well, I mean, Billy Martin and Bob Lemon were so so uh, d- different in terms of personalities, and they both managed the Yankees. You know, Lemon in 78 with you after you replaced Billy Martin, and then Martin came back, you replaced Lemon. It was a you know, merry-go-round of... Uh, of managers and each uh, week or each month, there seemed to be another manager appointed to the job. And so, how did you how did you uh, form your I don't know your background, your well wellspring of, of information and traits to draw upon when you became a manager and and a coach? Like, did you look to those early guys or minor league managers and coaches who who really formed the foundation for how you approached the job that you have now and your managing jobs? Uh, a little bit from all of them. You know, I, I played for uh, Billy, Bob Lemon. Uh, I, the last year I played, the last guy I played for was Dick Williams. So, and uh, you put Gene Mock in there. That's a pretty good group of managers. But uh, I was also fortunate, you know, people like Sparky Anderson would give me time to talk and that type thing. And uh, 
Uh, I've been around a lot of great people. Uh, Cal Ripken Sr. in Boston, Baltimore when I first went there. I managed in the minor leagues over there from 89 to 93 and, uh, or 92. And, uh, I spent a lot of time with Cal Sr. and uh, uh, tried to take a little bit of everybody. I, I think the biggest thing is I would have liked to have had the information when I was managing that guys have today. I think it uh, gives managers a much, much better chance of preparing and uh, being ready for different things in the game. And I would have loved to have had the analytics that we have today. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Lim and uh, Lim, Bob Lemon was a great manager, very good in-game manager, and everybody talked about him being so laid back. But uh, there in 78, uh, Pinella made him out one day in Cleveland right at the end of the season. He throws his helmet and it bounces up and hits Lim sitting there on the bench. And uh, Bob Lemon just took it, took the helmet and just threw it back at, at Lou. So, I, I, you know – so being laid back, I don't know how laid back that is. Uh, a manager today pick up a helmet and throw it back at a player, it'd probably be all over for ESPN. <laughs> but uh, uh, so Lim had a little bit of fire, more fire to him than people think. Well, just just imagine what would have happened if Billy Martin had been on the receiving end of that thrown helmet. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if Billy could have thrown thrown a strike as well as Bob Lemon did because he <laughs> he flew with it, but. Then Lou took the helmet and just shattered it. And uh, then next day, Lim comes out uh, wearing that shattered helmet all taped up. So, uh, you know, everything got kind of, you know, taken care of and uh, no uh, hard feelings were there. But uh, it was pretty uh, pretty good uh, first week or so in the big leagues for me to, to see, see the manager mm. throw a helmet back at a player. That's uh, – wow, that, that's, that's <laughs> some story. You know, I, I can't help but think of your – early career, your career as a player, without thinking of Munson, because it's just still ingrained in my memory all these years, all these decades later, that game at Yankee Stadium, I don't know if it was the first game after Munson was killed or or the first game after his funeral on that Monday, the fourth game of that four-game series at home against Baltimore, in which the whole team took the field, uh, sorry, the the eight other starting players took the field. The rest of the players and managers and manager and coaches were lined up along the dugout outside. And the moment of silence was held. And you were in your catcher's gear standing alongside the others outside the dugout. And the catcher's box was empty as a kind of a show of respect for Munson. And I'm wondering how that came about. I've read different things over the years about who initiated it or where the idea came from. And well, what do you remember about that, about that night? Um, I don't know who originally initiated it, the idea of it, but uh, who told me about it was Mr. Steinbrenner. He told me before the game, uh, he was there in the clubhouse and he came over to me and he said, you know, uh, when we go out for the national anthem, we're going to we're gonna have a moment of silence and we're going to walk home plate left empty. And he said, uh, we're going to have everybody stand out in front of the dugout. That was something that wasn't done until, like, you know, the teams would take the field for the national anthem. But uh, guys would just stand in the dugout, not out in front of the dugout. But he said, we're going to stand out in front of the dugout. And he said, I want you to stand next to Yogi. And Yogi will let you know the proper time to go back behind home plate. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Mr. Steinbrenner told Yogi what to do or whatever. But uh, uh, I listened to George and listened to Yogi. And uh, I think if Yogi wouldn't have finally pushed me out there, that might still be uh, cheering for Thurman. It went on about – probably about 15 minutes and uh you know i think a lot of people uh, 
just showed their appreciation for Thurman. And uh, I thought it was awesome. But uh, if Yogi wouldn't push me out there, they might still be going. Because you were so overcome by the moment, it was hard for you to move? Or what do you mean? No, you know, there was just a fans were on their feet and cheering and uh it was it wasn't just a moment of silence it was uh you know about a 15 minute uh uh recognition of Thurman and everything that he had done from the fans the way they were uh showing their appreciation for him and uh, uh Thurman you know came there in the late uh, 60s uh when the Yankees were struggling the so-called Horace Clark years and uh uh uh, he was just a hard-nosed player, a tight player, you know, uh, left everything out on the field. I uh, wasn't going to take anything off of anybody. And uh, I think the fans in New York right away from the beginning of his career just kind of uh, gravitated toward Thurman as this, the guy that's going to lead us back to championships. And Thurman did that. And uh, uh, they were showing their, their appreciation. Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget Reggie Jackson just crying in right field. I mean – place was packed and he he couldn't hold it in it was a very very touching moment I thought and well, you know uh, I played with Reggie there in New York played with him in California and uh, I you know I think everybody knows the start of Reggie's career there in New York got off to kind of a rocky start with Thurman and some of the other players but uh, uh, Reggie uh, had a, a great great deal of respect for Thurman and uh, Thurman respected Reggie too and at the end of uh, uh, you know, there in 79, uh, before Thurman got killed, I, you know, I think a lot of their differences were kind of patched up and uh, they seemed to get along okay. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, Munson was, was a guy who was, it was tough for him, especially at the end of his career. He seemed to have, his knee was bothering him. He played different positions. As a matter of fact, I remember a few games, it was either in 78 or 79, that he played a few games in right field. And um, there, were, there was talk about him DHing more, that kind of thing. That it was the, the toll of playing catcher all that, all that time was, um, was hard on him physically. Well, the night before he got killed, he played first base, and I caught that night. And uh, he ended up playing about three or four innings, and there was talk about he might go on the DL. He did, you know, I, he was dressed after the game already. And uh, the last thing I remember him talking, he, he told me, you're going to get a chance to play a lot more right now because he said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to catch for a couple weeks. And uh, he said, I may even go on the DL. I don't know. But uh, he said, don't get, uh, don't get uh, too happy about being back there because I'm definitely going to be back pretty quick. You're saying that the last time you saw Munson at that night game in Chicago before the day off which, on which he was killed, that that's the last thing he said to you, that you, Jerry, would have to get used to playing more because he was winding down? Yeah, but he made sure he told me it was going to be short term. He, he said, I'm going to be back pretty quick, so don't get, <laughs> don't get too happy back there because he said it's not going to last long. I'll be back. Even so, that's a heck of a statement either way. No I, no, I don't know if he was going to go on the DL or not, or he's just going to try to take a few more days off. I don't know, but he made sure to tell me it wasn't my position. It was his. Well, that's, he's, 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 you know, one of the ultimate competitors, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, where he was in his career, too. He, he was like 31 or two years old, I think. Uh, 32, yeah. He still had some years left. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
I really believe he was on a Hall of Fame trajectory and, uh, you know, losing his life like he did, I still think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think of the 42 or so years, 40, heading into the 43rd season since 78, and here you are, a guy from Goldsboro, North Carolina, and I'm wondering if growing up, playing ball recreationally, competitively through high school, and then through the minor leagues, whether you could have first foreseen really have the idea that you'd make your professional career in baseball as a player, manager, coach. What did you think heading into your baseball career? Did you have a particular number of years you hoped to play in the majors and then move on to another career entirely? What were you, what was your, what were you aspiring to in terms of professional, your professional life? Well, for one thing, I've been around baseball my whole life. You know, my dad played uh, a little professionally. I had a couple uncles played professionally. Uh, one of my uncles signed with the Cardinals in the 30s. Uh, he was on the 42 Cardinal team. Is Sam Nairn is his name. Mm -hmm. uh, when he finished playing with the Cardinals, uh, he went to Brooklyn as a, as a coach and instructor with the Dodgers. And uh, then he went to the Pirates. He signed with the Cardinals in the 30s, and everywhere Branch Rickey went, Mr. Rickey took him with him. And uh, then when Mr. Rickey left the Pirates in the early 60s, Sam uh, ended up leaving there, I think, after the 64 season. But the first thing I ever remember about baseball was uh, the 60 World Series. I was four years old, and my mom and dad went, went to games three, four, and five in New York against the Yankees that year. So... Uh, I knew it was something that had to be pretty special, even though being four years old, that my mom and dad were leaving home. There was something special about it. That's the first thing I knew about baseball. Really? Did, did, you, hear, did you hear about baseball? Did, your, did Sam talk to you about what it was like playing in the majors? Did you ask him? Did, you, did he have artifacts and souvenirs and that kind of stuff around the house? Yeah, yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, when he came home in the winters there, I was like four years old, and, you know, talking about the World Series, that type thing. And uh, uh, um, it was almost like a god was coming home in the wintertime. You know, he had been a major league player and a major league coach. And it was a pretty big deal to talk with him. And uh, one thing I enjoyed was the stories he would talk about uh, – Branch Rickey, uh, I think Mr. Rickey is probably one of the best executives there's ever been in the game. He started the farm system that everybody's used for years. Uh, you know, the, the thing about Mr. Rickey, just signing Jackie Robinson, breaking the color line in baseball, mm -hmm. if Mr. Rickey didn't do anything else, that was an all-time Hall of Fame move for me from a baseball executive. And uh, But just hearing uh, the things that Mr. Rickey would talk about are things that are being used today. Uh, I know uh, Mr. Ricky, Sam would bring home balls that had uh, had been like marked up with a marker to show the spin rotation on baseballs. And that's something guys are doing today and they're coming up with that. Like, that's a big deal. Uh, Mr. Ricky in the 40s was talking about spin, the spin rate of a baseball, whether a guy could pitch up in a strike zone or not. And now people talk about spin rate like it's something new. But this is something Branch Ricky was talking about in the 40s. So Mr. Ricky was really ahead of his time in a lot of things. And uh, Sam always talking about uh, the way Mr. Ricky wanted to uh, had uh, workouts down to detailed and uh, that type thing. And uh, so I was pretty fortunate to be around people like that. And, you know, then going back with the Yankees, with people like Yogi and uh, uh, Yogi 
talking about the way the guys are catching and uh, what he learned from uh, Bill Dickey. So I've, I've, I've got a pretty strong history of things going back. And uh, one thing that I'm finding out is uh, there's not a whole lot of new things that's being repackaged and uh, the information is easier to get to. But uh, it's pretty interesting about uh, uh, ways guys were catching back in uh, – uh, the, the 30s and 40s with Yogi and uh, things that catchers are doing today. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, I mean, you mentioned Sam. I mean, you, you really come from a pretty pretty strong, to say the least, pretty strong baseball family. I mean, you've, you've got various relatives, including Sam there. You have another Sam there and a cousin of yours who's now a coach in the national system who pitched in the majors briefly. Your son played ball in the minors. He's now a coach in the minors. Your dad, I think you told me, once played semi-pro ball, right? No, he, play, he played with the Goldsboro Goldbugs and uh, I don't know what it was, the Coastal Plain League or something. I don't, But I don't know if he signed with a uh, major league club or not, but it was it was pro ball. And I had two uncles that played. And uh, besides uh, uh, Sam and uh, – Sam's son, uh, Richard, he played in the Mets organization. He was drafted by the Mets and played with the Mets in uh, A-ball and double-A, I think, in the 60s. So it's a kind of a family business. Do you know what year in the 60s he was with the Mets? What year? Uh, I want to say he signed in uh, 67, the sun, uh, summer of 67. Uh, so he would have been in the Mets organization probably 67, 68, right in there, 69 in the minor leagues. Uh, I know in the minors he caught uh, people like Gary Gentry, some of those guys. And uh, I, I don't know the other guys he may have played with in the minor leagues, but I know Gentry was one of those guys. Well, I think those years the head of the Mets farm system was a guy named Whitey Herzog. Right? Yeah, I know Whitey was there. and. Uh, uh, Whitey's, you know, I've, I've never had the for, good fortune of playing for Whitey. I, he's one of the guys that I, I miss, but uh, Whitey's one of the, you know, the guys that uh, Whitey came up with, the Yankees and then with the Mets. And uh, I think Whitey also played in the Oriole organization with Paul Richards over there. So Whitey had a pretty good background of people. Mm -hmm. So what was it like when you were in Milwaukee and you were coaching with your, your brother, right? He was on the staff at the same time that you were there? Yeah, he was there and uh, did a good job. Uh, I, the 2011 club we had there in Milwaukee could have easily been a World Series ball club. Uh, Cardinals just got hot at the right time, beat the Phillies and us to get the World Series and then won the World Series against the uh, the Rangers. So, it's, uh, you know, a lot of times it's when you, you, you're playing well and when you get hot, and the Cardinals definitely did that in 2011. Mm -hmm. So what was it like being on the on the same club with your brother? No, it was nice, and uh, you know, uh, I, as a matter of fact, when I signed in '74, I signed out of high school with the Yankees. He signed out of college, and we played together in Johnson City that year. And I hit third, and he hit fourth. And uh, the next year, he uh, he was in a trade with the White Sox for Ed Herman. I don't know if you remember when. Uh, and Herman was a catcher, lieutenant hitting catcher, with two ends for the Yankees. My brother was in that deal. Oh, okay. All right. Wow, and what about what about your son? I mean, you're you said you're working out with him during this, or throwing at least with him during this uh, yeah, break. He played uh, he played in the Oriole organization for about three or four years, and uh, 
uh, ended up uh, getting hurt, had had different injuries along the way, and didn't make the big leagues. But uh, Braves have hired him as a minor league uh, coach. Last year he was at Danville as an extra coach, and this year he was going to go back to Danville as a the hitting guy. And, uh, he does a good job, and uh, I think the Braves are fortunate to have him. He's a pretty smart guy and uh, been around the game his whole life. So uh, uh, I think the Braves have a pretty good uh, instructor there. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the in the 90s, uh, he was a bat boy for the Rangers those years. And then when I went to the Red Sox, he was a bat boy. And uh, uh, he was probably sitting about five or six feet away. I don't know how he hadn't been – I never found a picture when uh, Pedro and Zim got into it or Zim charged mm. Pedro and – but uh, Connor was sitting there close by that. I, I never figured out why he wasn't in any of the pictures. Well, I don't, I don't think you would want him to be in the middle of that scrum, right? No, no. But, uh, you know, just the experiences he had growing around the game, I uh, uh, was exposed to a lot of really good players. Do you ever think, Terry, about, about um, wanting to manage again? Uh, you know, something I, the, the one reason I would like to manage is just the information the guys have today compared to what I, you know, I was getting and having to dig out on my own. Uh, that would be interesting to see, but, uh, uh, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I've been very blessed to be in the game for a long time and, uh, I'm not out politicking for it. I'm not looking for it. And, uh, if it happened, that would be great. If it doesn't happen, I, that would be great too. I've been very blessed. Understood. All right. Well, Jerry, thank you very much for talking with me. And right. we will hope that hope that the season comes about and that you'll have gainful employment for the months to come. No, thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Okay, well, take care of yourself. Right, okay, bye-bye. <laughs>